0: I think I want to start this teaching by something I was thinking about recently with the generation uh, that, that I'm part of. I was born in 1978, and uh, I got a whoop somewhere. There's another 78, yeah. So what, what they say is that if you were born in that year, you're kind of at the tail end of what's called Generation X, Gen X. And uh, Gen X, we were known as the slacker Generation. I don't know if you guys know that or not. And our music that we produced really kind of caught that vibe. You know, we came out with uh, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Sonic Youth and uh, Snoop, Snoop Doggy Dog, Gen X. And, uh, you know, the whole vibe was we are skeptical and we just don't trust anybody And we want to do as little as humanly possible. And a lot of this was driven by what we were dealing with. You know, our generation was the first generation to deal with widespread divorce in the family. So many of our homes were broken. We were discouraged by that. Um, The AIDS epidemic was on the rise, and we were panicked and scared about that. Drugs, cocaine, you know, was a really big deal. And uh, my whole life, I heard about kidnappers. You know, you got to watch out for kidnappers. They're around every corner. Don't get in that van. Don't take that candy. Super worried about, we couldn't even go trick-or-treating without worrying that there was razor blades up in there. I mean, it was just a scary moment in human history. And so we had that kind of skeptical mentality uh, about life. But they say that there was an event that changed a lot of us in, in our generation, in that generation, and that it, was, it happened on 9-11 when the Twin Towers were attacked. And uh, on that day, a lot of Gen Xers, because we were all young adults by then, you know, in our early 20s to late 30s by that time, a lot of Gen Xers were actually the heroes of that day. Uh, But after that day, a lot of Gen Xers were mobilized from being slackers to something else. You know, a lot of them uh, got involved in the military. Many discovered a love for a country. Uh, Many got serious about life for the very first time. Even marriages amongst that generation skyrocketed after those events. Many people kind of looking at each other saying, you know, it's time for me to, to, to make a commitment and to be serious about the life that's in front of me. And the reason I kind of share that story is because it was an event that, I think, jolted a lot of people. And Peter, as he writes the book of First Peter, he thinks that the event of moderate persecution for the church that he wrote to, that was turning into more significant forms of persecution. He thinks that that event would have an identifying um, push on the church that he wrote to. In other words, they should be coming to grips with who they are and what they're supposed to be about as their Christianity began to be marginalized in their society. And I personally believe that we're in a similar moment Uh, today. I don't mean to be really discouraging about it or anything. I'm pretty positive about it. I'm excited about it. But I think that when Christianity is pushed to the margins of a society, it has the opportunity to come to terms with what it is, who we are, and what we are meant to do in special ways that we don't come to terms with in times of ease or times where we are generally uh, received for our views. So today, this passage I think it's going to help us. I think it's going to help us learn how we become God's people. I think it's going to help us learn what we are as God's people. And then I think it's going to help us answer the question, what are God's people for? What are we supposed to do while we're here on earth? Why, why, in other words, when I become a believer, why didn't I just sort of, didn't my body evaporate and I went home to be with God? What is the purpose of my life here today? so for that first question, how do we become God's people? Let's read our first two verses, verse 7 and 8, if you look down in your Bibles. Peter said, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to to do. Now, we're picking up in verse 7 because that's where we left off in our last study, but we've already looked at verse 6. And if you look in your Bibles, you probably have verse 6, 7, and 8 sort of typeset in a different kind of way, as if they're poetry or quotation or something like that. And that's because Peter, in verse 6, 7, and 8, is quoting from three Old Testament passages, just bang, 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 three Old Testament scriptures that he puts into his letter. And every scripture that he quotes from talks about this thing called a cornerstone or a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. It's like he picked every stone, cornerstone, rock-related scripture from the Old Testament prophets and threw them into uh, his letter at this point. And all of these verses are meant to highlight something about Jesus's identity. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus is the cornerstone on whom the church is built. We are God's house, And Jesus is our guide, he's our foundation, he's the one that we're built upon. But here we learn two more things about Jesus as the cornerstone. In verse seven, we learn, as Peter quotes from Psalm 118, that Jesus is the rejected cornerstone, the rejected cornerstone. What's that a picture of? Well, just imagine these guys building a building, and they've ordered every single stone, in the structure. They've sent their blueprints to the quarry. The quarry has gotten them. They've carved every single stone. And one of them is the cornerstone, which is very important. The builders come by when the stones are all carved up, ready to go, and they look around the quarry and they say, well, that stone right there, and they're pointing to the cornerstone. They say, we don't know where that goes. We don't want that stone. That's Jesus. Jesus became, even though he was the cornerstone, he was rejected. Now, that should make you think about the religious leaders, right? They should have been the ones to point out to the rest of the nation, Jesus fulfills all the prophecies. He ticks all the boxes from the Old Testament. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. But instead, they rejected him. They crucified him. So he's the rejected cornerstone. But secondly, in verse 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. And there he tells us that not only is Jesus the foundational stone, not only is Jesus the uh, rejected stone, but he's also a stumbling stone. In Isaiah 8, the idea is of a rock on the ground that as someone is kind of walking along, they trip over this rock, they stumble over this rock. You know, I used to run a lot of miles on trails, and uh, one of my greatest fears running was tripping falling. I'm not the most coordinated person in the world or the most athletic person in the world and I took some serious big-time diggers out there in the wilderness all by myself, just tumbling, falling, scraping everything and just kind of getting up, looking around going, did anybody see that? Nobody saw it? Okay, I guess I just got to keep going. But that's the idea here of Jesus. He's the stumbling stone. I don't know if you know this, But Jesus, his persons, claims, death, his resurrection, are offensive to many people. You know, for one, Jesus is exclusive. He says that no man can come to the Father except by him, and that is offensive to many people. Jesus is truthful. You know, he announces that it's our sin that separates us from God and that we need the cross in order to get back to God and Jesus is confrontational. Did you know that when Jesus came onto the scene, the first words out of his mouth were repent and believe in the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not really like they wouldn't advise you to have that as your first message. You know, like, hey, when you get up there, first thing you should do is just tell them that what they're doing is wrong and they need to head in the opposite direction. Usually people would say something like, tell them a fun story or, you know, tell them that they're great, you know, build them up for a little while and then you can kind of drop the hammer, but not Jesus. He just comes in, first word, repent. And all of these things combined about Jesus lead him to become a stumbling stone. You see, the truth of the matter is that wherever Jesus' gospel is accurately proclaimed, there will be at least some who are offended by what they hear of the gospel. Even though it's a message of radical grace, even though it's the most profound message of the acceptance and love and compassion of God, uh, the reality is because it goes through the message of we're broken and fallen and sinful people that needed a Savior And it's the only way back to God. This leads many to find offense at Jesus. It's just the nature of who he is. It's the nature of his message. Now, I want to talk about a little phrase there that we read in verse 8 that might have tripped a couple of you up as I read it. Notice there in verse 8 at the end, Peter adds his own commentary. He's not quoting anymore when he says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That phrase, as they were destined to do, uh, has caused a lot of questions. The question really is, what were these people who stumbled because they couldn't obey the gospel, what were they destined to do? And, you know, Christian theologians have talked about this passage and debated this passage over and over again, and... I've read a ton of them. Basically, whatever your theological grid is, that's the view that you have because linguistically, it could go one of two ways. It either means that people have a choice to receive the Lord and upon saying, I choose not to embrace Jesus, then God then destines those who reject the gospel to stumble. So the thing they're destined to is stumbling or... The second option is that they are destined to disobey the gospel. So it's impossible for them to even come to Christ in the first place. And if you know me at all and you've heard me preach for any length of time, you know that my leaning is going to be that humanity has a choice to make that God has given to them in his sovereignty, but that he's given us a choice and that if we reject the Lord, then we will be in a stumbled state. But the reality is is that even if human disobedience is part of God's plan, human beings are held accountable for their actions. It doesn't get human beings off the hook. Remember Judas Iscariot? There were prophecies about him, but he was held accountable for his own decisions, his own actions. You see, human disobedience is never presented in Scripture as something that's final or something that is irreversible while someone lives. Anyone can turn and repent and receive the gospel. And some of you guys know what that's all about because you've lived it in your own life, right? You know, you were running from the Lord for a period of time, perhaps, and resisting him, stumbling at the identity of Jesus, and then a moment came where you submitted your life to Christ, and he came into you and and saved you from your sin. But the first question that we're trying to ask is, how do we become Believers, how how do we become part of God's family? Well, for that, we just have to go back to the very beginning of our passage. Look at verse seven. He said, the honor is for you who believe. So how do we become God's people? By belief, by simple faith and trust in the Lord. Ephesians two, verse eight says that we are saved by grace through faith. And I think that the reason this is so important for Peter to communicate to these exile Christians is because when you're in that state, it's important to to have a fresh understanding of how you came into this whole thing in the first place. Because in times of hostility and chaos and times where Christianity is being pushed to the margins, it's tempting to think that there are other things that get you in. But your voting record doesn't get you in. Your social compassion doesn't get you in. Your attendance at Christian events does not get you in. Your acts of service do not get you in. It's the reception of the gospel that brings you into God's family. And this is really important for exile people to kind of have a fresh understanding of. Because like I said, in times of hostility... Uh, we generally start creating like two big buckets that we think everybody falls into. You're either X or you're Y, you're A or you're B kind of thing. And I told you in a previous sermon on First Peter that a lot of times the Christian experience will be one where you feel homeless, like there's no category for you to fit in on certain things. You know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where somebody finds out that you're a Christian which means that you're, you believe the message of the gospel, but they've got like a hundred things in their mind that they think, well, if you're a Christian, then that means I know what you think about these extra hundred things. You know, like some people have talked to me like, oh, you're a pastor, you're a Christian, and they think that that means that they know how I feel about guns. I'm like, how, does the, how do those two things go together. I haven't given you any clue whatsoever how I feel about I mean I'd like one if someone has a free one I wouldn't mind it, but I'm more of a baseball bat kind of guy, but I just haven't really like come out with that or said it's like a biblical position or any kind of thing like that. But a lot of times in times of hostility we put people in categories. But the gospel belief does not mean you have to feel one way or another about guns, vaccines, masks, politics, race, government, big tech, etc. There's going to be nuance and discussion in all of these areas, and hopefully we can love each other through them. But exiled Christians will find themselves at times unable to be labeled or put into a particular camp. And so we've got to remember that we're in by what? Faith. Faith, trust, belief in the message of the gospel. And before I move on to the next question of what we are, just look at the phrase there in verse seven again. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. You guys, it's an honor to have Jesus, amen? It's an honor to be a believer. It's an honor to have this incredible message from the Lord. And this was huge for these Christians that Peter wrote to, to receive, because they were beginning to be rejected by the Roman Empire itself. And to know that even if they were, to borrow a modern word, if, even if they were canceled by their society, that they were honored by God would have just been a powerful thing to help them through some of that rejection. And I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. I don't know about you guys. I love baseball. But um, recently, the Major League, baseball, uh, Major League Baseball did something that I been wanting them to do i thought they should do a long time ago because they've said for many years now that the negro leagues that used to exist they were they said they're they're the major leagues but they never counted the statistics in major league records and archives and recently they made the decision to do that they got the statistics robust enough and reliable enough to where they brought them in and i love that they did that i think it was great you can't you know it's not gonna uh erase the atrocities of the past or anything like that, but I thought it was a cool thing that they did. And one of the results was that many people who'd not interacted with any of those records or statistics in the past, all of a sudden they came face to face with them in now our modern time. And all these now, you know, dead and gone, many of them athletes who'd done all these incredible things, they're now being heralded by many who never even knew their names for you know, decades now. They're being celebrated because people are going back and now looking at, whoa, this player, amazing. What they did, didn't even know their name. And I think in a more significant way, generations of Christians who have been in this life beaten and bloodied and killed for their belief in Jesus. And even today, on average, 11 Christians die every day for their faith in christ they die at the hands of persecution one day they will receive we will receive the greatest honor so that's who we are we're we're how do we come in by faith all right but then the second question i wanted to ask today is what what are we then what are god's people you know if we if we become god's people by faith Then after we express our faith in Christ, what happens to us? Well, for that, let's read the first half of verse 9 together. This is radical, what Peter says. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I'll just stop right there. Every one of those descriptors is Peter's lifting straight off the Old Testament. Everything he does in this passage is all from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Here what he does is he is referring to what Israel was like. Ancient Israel in the Old Testament era, they were a chosen race. God chose them as a special people. They were a holy nation. They had a priesthood. And they were God's precious and special possession. Now some people in reading first Peter chapter two, think that what Peter is doing is saying, hey, God used to work in Israel and he now has replaced Israel with this thing called the church. And if you've heard me teach for a while, you know that I don't hold that position. I love people that do, but I don't hold that position. I believe that the Lord has paused his program for Israel and that he is currently working in the ecclesia, the church, and that one day he's going to take his church to be his own, and there will be a millennial reign of Christ, which I talked about in a recent study, where he turns his attention afresh to the people of Israel and fulfills many promises that are left unfulfilled from the Old Testament era. But what Peter is saying is, wow, you're a special people. You're brought into a similar program as the nation of Israel itself. So let's think about the four things that Peter says we are. Look at the first one there. Number one, he says, We're a chosen race, a chosen race. Now, we all have blood relatives, we all have a lineage, we all have a heritage, we all have a family. Some of you, you know, you've got blood relatives that you really love spending time with, and then you have blood relatives that you really got to pray hard before you spend time with them, right? You know, we've got a, family is family. Um, but Peter here, he comes along and he says, you know, when you become a Christian, you're brought into like a new race God has designed. That's radical. This is really important to Peter because he's got a vision where he just what he thinks is, if you're living in your your Christian life in a time where it's widely rejected, you just can't do it by yourself. So you got to see that you're part of this chosen race. Now, we have memberships and lots of things, don't we? You know, if if you pulled out your wallet today, you probably got all these different cards. You know that you're a member, member of. I think one of my proudest memberships that I have is I'm a member of Costco. I I love being a member of Costco. I was was told the 8 a.m. service, I said, I I think that when I walk into Costco, that is when I feel the most American. (laughs) It's just like big, huge stuff, and it's just amazing. I love it. You know, like in Europe, they're just like, that's way too big. You can't have stuff that big. But it's like, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. I can buy 300 pounds of Cheetos if I want to, you know, kind of thing. But when you have a membership like that, you consider it every year. You know, maybe this year I need it, maybe next year I don't need it, and you kind of kind of weigh the value all the time. And I think a lot of people do that with their church relationship. Is this something I need right now? Is this something that I don't need right now? Is this something? But what Peter is saying is, you kind of don't have a choice in the matter. You are, if you believe in Jesus, put in. To this chosen race. It's yours whether you want it or not. And so we've got to understand this about who we are. But secondly, look at there in verse 9. He says, we are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. And I'll just put on our thinking caps for a second and think about this phrase from Peter because um, some of my favorite stories in the Old Testament happened when kings, royals in Israel tried to operate as priests. And it never went, went, went well. You know, there was one king, he tried to serve as a priest, and he got leprosy. It's like God was drawing a sharp line of distinction and saying, no, the kings are kings, the priests are priests, the prophets are prophets, and you can't uh, cross-pollinate these roles. You are one or the other. But you can't be but all three, you can't be uh, two of them. And so Peter comes along and he says, no, but you are a royal priesthood. Now, I think the reason that Peter is able to say this is because, listen to me now, he's not comparing us to the priesthood that Israel had. Okay, Israel had a priesthood where the tribe of Levi and specifically the descendants of Aaron, they would operate in serving the nation, helping them worship God at the tabernacle. But I don't think Peter's talking about comparing us to that priesthood. He's comparing us to Israel right now. And God had a view of Israel that they were supposed to all be a kingdom of priests to the nation. What the priesthood of Aaron and Levi were doing for the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was meant to be doing for the whole world. Listen to what God said in Exodus 19 verse 6. He said to them, you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just some of them as priests, but he thought of all of them as priests. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the priesthood of the believers, that all of us are meant to model for our world what it looks like to center our lives on God and to live out his edicts, his laws, his ethic here on earth today. So the same calling they had is the calling that we have. Now, You might remember that Israel didn't always do this successfully. Do you remember when Jesus came before he was crucified? He went to the temple and he saw everything going on, the buying and selling, ripping people off. And he overturned the tables and drove out the money changers. And then he quoted from Isaiah and Jeremiah and he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves den of robbers. So they were supposed to be priests to all the nations, but they failed in that mission. But we have that same mission today. We are meant to be outward facing as God's people. And that's what we're kind of trying to figure out here in First Peter. We're trying to figure out ways and postures as the church holding fast to orthodoxy, holding fast to the gospel, to not Be angry or sequester ourselves, or definitely not conform ourselves to society, but to be outward facing, faithful to the Lord, gospel preaching, priests to the world that we are currently living in. But he also says there in verse 9 that we're a holy nation. Now, this was huge for them because they were being rejected by their nation at that time. In fact, the Roman Empire was going to sanction. Persecution, legalized persecution, shortly after this letter was written. So it's really helpful to them to hear look, even though we're part of this great empire, uh, we have a different citizenship. We are a holy nation. Now, I believe personally, I don't know if you guys feel this way or not, but I believe that people who see themselves as primarily citizens of God's kingdom and then secondarily citizens of whatever nation therein, in our context, the United States, I believe people who carry that view have the potential of being the best citizens that their secondary citizenship allows for. So I think that believers who see their primary allegiance to Jesus have the opportunity of being the best citizens here in the United States. So that's what we are, though. We're a holy nation. And then finally, he says, a people for his own possession. Israel was special, not because they had Abraham, not because they had Isaac, not because they had Jacob, not because they had even the Ten Commandments or Moses or the plagues. The reason that Israel was special and the reason that those figures and those events and those things were special is because God possessed the people of Israel. He chose them, he adopted them, He made them into his people, and that's what made them special in the past. And that, brothers and sisters, is what makes us special today. Sometimes in church, you can kind of build like whole sermon series based off like basically you're special, I'm special, we're special. But why are we special? We're special because we belong to God. You know, speaking of sports, when you go to like the Hall of Fame for Uh, some sport that you're into, you're going to find all this paraphernalia, you know, um, clothing, jerseys, equipment. And every time you see it, what are you expecting? You're expecting that it had previously been used by an athlete who was amazing or an athlete who was doing something amazing. Like if you ever get the chance to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, I've never been there myself, but if you ever get the chance to go, I'm willing to bet that my 1992 Junior Varsity Pacific Grove High School baseball cleats are not in the Hall of Fame. I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure that they're not going to be there. Because anybody walking up to that glass case expecting somebody amazing owned these or did something amazing in these just to find out like, oh, this is a Junior Varsity, uh, like, what? whatever happened to them? Nothing as far as baseball goes. Nothing ever happened to him. He reached his peak in 10th grade. And then we just kind of move on. You would never expect to see that. Everything there is precious or special because of who owned it. And that's what the gospel does to us. It makes us God's people. That's how we become his own precious possession. Now, let's close today by asking the question, okay, if that's how we get in by faith, and that's who we are. We're a you know, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special possession, then what is God asking us to do? Why does God make us into his people? What's our purpose here on earth today? And for that, we should read the conclusion of our passage. Look at the middle of verse 9. He says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now I've been telling you that Peter is riffing off the Old Testament. He quoted the Old Testament earlier three times. Uh, then he borrowed themes from the Old Testament with a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, uh, God's precious possession. Now he's paraphrasing the book of Hosea. Some of your like, alarm bells might have been going off if you're a fan of the book of Hosea. Because in Hosea, God had a people, the people of Israel that were being unfaithful to God. So they had his mercy, then they lost his mercy, and God gave them hope that he would restore mercy to them once again. Uh, they had been his people, they weren't acting like they weren't his people, and so God was gonna work hard to restore them and bring them back into being his people. By the way, uh, if that describes you today, God is trying to bring you back into his family, he is trying to reach out into your life. There might be a reason that you're here today. You wandered into this place just kind of wondering, like, I don't know. I'm not into this whole thing. I'm not into church. I haven't done this for years, if ever. But it is God who sees you as not his person without his mercy, wanting to bring you into having his mercy through what Jesus has done on the cross and by bringing you into his family so you can become one of his people if you would believe in him. But what is the reason that we're here? Well, he says it there in verse 9. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What's your job? What's my job as a believer? My job is to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's my job. To proclaim how amazing God is. Now, part of this proclaiming of God's excellencies, it is something that we do vertically. Um, We were doing it earlier today when we were singing songs to the Lord. Every once in a while, we'll sing a song, you know, because Paul said in Ephesians that we should sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So sometimes we'll sing a song where we really are just singing it to each other. I'm so thankful, though, that we don't do the awkward thing where in songs like that, we look around at everybody like, Hey, I'm singing to you, and now I'm singing to you. I like that we just keep it for, that just be awkward, Don't, let's not do that. But some, so sometimes our songs are to each other. Well, most of the time our songs are to God. We're singing to the Lord. We're declaring to him his excellencies. And by the way, I thought the band was rocking today. That was so good. I loved it. I loved that guitar that Riley was playing. That was just incredible. But... And and this is an important part of proclaiming God's excellencies, is proclaiming them to God. You know, some of you, you struggle with anxiety or you struggle with depression. And if that describes you, you know, you're in a really big club in the church. There's a lot of us. And I've found, for me, that declaring God's excellencies to God is one of the best ways for me to climb out of that state. I kind of liken it to being in a deflated hot air balloon, but I'm sitting in the basket, and as I'm praising God, just down in the dirt, like, all right, what do I know about God? And I think of an attribute of His, and I start rejoicing in that about Him. It's like the hot air begins to fill the balloon, And pretty soon as my praises rise, the balloon begins to take off. And now I'm lifted up. As I'm lifting God up, since I'm attached to him, it does something to me as, as well. So it's good for us to proclaim God's excellencies to God. But really here in this passage, that's not what Peter's highlighting. He's saying we need to proclaim God's excellencies to everybody else, to the world that we live in. That's what Israel was supposed to be doing, holy nation, chosen race, royal priesthood. They were supposed to be sharing with the world who God is and how amazing God is. So what is our mission? Well, it's really simple. We're to uh, declare God and his goodness for the rest of our lives, that he took us from darkness and he brought us into light. This is why I think you could say that at the heart of all good evangelism, you know, the sharing of your faith, talking to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus about him, at the heart of all good evangelism is praise. Sometimes we think at the heart of good evangelism is the truth or something else, you know, like um, maybe I don't like who you are now, so I want to evangelize you so you can become likable. That's the bad heart for evangelism you know or you don't know the truth and I want you to know the truth that is a heart for evangelism but at the at the best heart for evangelism is a heart of praise a heart that says God is so amazing he's so wonderful and I've tasted the Lord I know how good he is and I'm just dying for you to know who God is and and how good he is and I know that the way for you to know him is through the gospel. So that's why I want to share him with you is because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. At the heart of all good evangelism, you'll find praise, praise for God. Now this mission to declare God's excellencies, I think it's good for us to just keep it simple. You know, there's a place for a studied defense of the faith, things like apologetics where you're really dealing with, wrestling with all the arguments against and for Christianity, Uh, that's great. And there's a great place for that. You know, there's incredible world-renowned scholars that have spent their lives believing the gospel, studying the gospel, and declaring why it's true. So it's great to study those people, think about defense of the faith. But what he's talking about here is just telling people how amazing God has been to you and what the Lord has done in your life. It's a fulfilling mission. So my hope today is that this little passage of Scripture has done something to l- elevate your understanding of your identity, of who you are. You know, I've been telling you guys through this study that there are wrong ways to respond to the marginalization of Christianity, right? Right? I've been telling you, I'm I'm like a broken record. I've been telling you, Peter doesn't want us to respond with um, unrighteous anger. You know, and some people have been doing that over the last year. Some believers have been doing that over the last year. You know, hostility, oh, I'm going to respond with hostility. You know, I receive hostility, so I'm going to respond with hostility. But Jesus said, you know, we're to be... As sheep among wolves. So the strategy isn't when the wolves treat you like wolves to say, all right, it's time for me to wolf up and I'm going to respond in like manner. No, we're sheep. And so we got to trust the Lord and we can't lose our witness in the way that we respond. Or I've been telling you that we're definitely not called to a holy huddle kind of experience, right? Where we, you know, just pull away from society and kind of do our own thing. You know, like, Pastor Nate, I got, a, I got a sweet property in northern Idaho. The whole church, we could all live there. We could have a compound. You could be our leader. Like, no thank you. It just does not sound like something that we would enjoy. It would really backfire. And definitely, we're not supposed to respond by saying, oh, here are the things about Christianity that our society doesn't like today. And we're going to massage our Bibles or delete things from our Bibles or reinterpret our Bibles so that we can be acceptable in the eyes of the world. We don't want to do that either. And this passage helps you, if you think about it, with all three of those things. Because when you want to angrily fight back, when you want to return hostility for hostility, this passage can help you remember who you are. You're God's representative here on earth. You're meant to declare God's excellencies. And the people who anger you are actually in the process of stumbling over the rock that is Christ. They're your target. They're the very people that we're hoping and praying for to eventually receive Jesus. And then when you want to flee and create kind of a Christian community that's completely separate from society, this passage helps you understand that that would actually never work it would not be successful because our life's calling is to declare God's excellencies to the nations. So if we detach ourselves, who will we declare to? In a sense, you could say that a detached Christian community is actually a disobedient Christian community because they can't declare God's excellencies to anyone else. And when you want to conform your convictions or the Bible itself uh, to whatever society approves of today, I mean, you've got to remember, they're going to approve something else tomorrow, so be careful. But when you do that, when you want to do that, you have to remember that you are honored to have Jesus. You are a holy nation. You've been brought out of darkness and into the light. The Word gives you the truth. You belong to God, so it doesn't matter. If society won't have you, in other words, because you belong to God, when society comes along and says, well, we don't want you, your attitude should be, well, it really doesn't bother me because I belong to God. So if society won't have me, it's fine because God will have me. What Peter is doing is trying to call us up. I think if Peter were here today, in a second, I'm going to invite Janine to come up. I wish I could invite Peter to come up, but Janine is awesome too. But if Peter came up, I think what he would do is he would look at all of us and he would say, you guys are important. You're really important to this town. You're important to this community. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are his people. So let's declare his praises to the world that we live in.